Hello, and welcome to this episode of Conversations with Sports Fans. I'm your host, Doug Hill, and in this episode, we'll be joined by Don Rooker. Don was born in Boston, but grew up in Southern California, where he was a business executive and speaker before retiring to Arizona in 2006. Today, he consults with AZ Sports Cards, a sports card and memorabilia store in Phoenix, Arizona. Don, welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. Thanks, Doug. Nice to be with you. I'm really excited about this. I was a collector once upon a time uh, in the era when it really wasn't very uh, lucrative or fun to collect. It was all a bunch of cardboard, I think. But I look forward to diving into this a little bit further later. But before we get there, my first question for you, as it is for everybody, what is your earliest recollection of being a sports fan? Well, I thought about that in, over the last couple of days, and, and, and I do have one, one moment where I think uh, I crossed over from, from being a kid to being a fan. And, and I was, my dad was a big sports fan, but it was his brother, my uncle Mo, that really got me involved. And as far as growing up in Boston and being a Red Sox fan, my uncle Mo had had season tickets behind the Red Sox dugout since probably the 1930s. I never quite figured out how he afforded them because I wasn't quite sure what he ever did for a living. But uh, luckily, he would occasionally, uh, when he wasn't taking clients and things like that, he would he would take his nephew to the ballgame. And the first time I really remember uh, was I was about seven years old. And of course, I didn't know much about the players and baseball and all that. But I did know who Ted Williams was because of uh, his iconic status. And what was interesting is Williams uh, missed the entire 1952 season and most of the 53 season um, flying fighter jets in Korea. By the way, in case people don't know this, his wingman was John Glenn, which is a great piece of trivia, I think. Yeah, but it is. In any event, I was at, my uncle took me to the game in, in August of 53. I was seven years old, and it happened to be when Williams had just come back from Korea. And in looking into it later, uh, especially reading Ben Bradley Jr.'s biography of Williams, uh, the Red Sox didn't even expect Williams to play that season. They felt, you know, they weren't going to win the pennant from the Yankees, and they just thought that maybe Ted ought to take some time off and get ready for the following year. But knowing Ted Williams' personality, that wasn't going to happen. And so he said, no, I want to come back and play. And so... It just so happened that this night that we were at the game was the first game that he was back in uniform after his stint in Korea. And um, he wasn't in the starting lineup, and I didn't really know that much about it at that time. But what I remember succinctly is that they brought him out as a pinch hitter in the seventh or eighth inning. And every single person in the ballpark got up and gave him a standing ovation. And, um, and then he, he popped out to third base and walked back to the dugout and they gave him another standing ovation. And I remember that moment, even as a seven-year-old kid about this player, there's something different about this guy. The fans understand how special it was to have Ted Williams on their team. And, and the other thing that's really interesting about this is I think most baseball fans 
of any level understand that Ted Williams was the last person to hit 400 in 1941. But what they don't know, because it's a statistical anomaly, is that when he came back from Korea in August and September, he played in about 30 or so games and had 110 at-bats. And in those 110 at-bats, after missing almost two complete seasons of baseball, he actually hit 407, which was even better than the 406 that he hit in 1941. Of course, he didn't qualify for the batting championship or anything, but no. that it's amazing that he could come back after all that time with essentially no spring training, no background, no warm-ups, no minor league affiliation games or anything like that, and come back and, and just be the same player he was when he left. And so that's, you know, that got me started as a Ted Williams fan and a Red Sox fan, and it's just gone on from there. Well, what a wonderful um, first experience, uh, certainly a first memory, is something that you can lock in on from your first trip to, to Fenway. And I would say that as time's gone by, that that Williams game has probably even overshadowed whatever you might have experienced walking into Fenway Park for the first time. But what was that like? Do you remember what it was like to, to go into the stadium that first time? Well, again, it's a little hazy because I was only <laughs> seven years old. But, but the things you remember are, you know, you remember going underneath because it was it was a kind of stadium where you had to come through like a tunnel type area to get to the seats and everything. And I remember my uncle, you know, pointing out to me, you know, the, the, the concession stands and everything and goes, because he, you know, he wanted to make sure that I got the whole experience and that was going to include a Fenway Frank. Yeah. And, yeah. And so it's those kinds of things that you remember. I know Billy Crystal talks about the first time his dad ever took him to Yankee stadium and, how when he came through that tunnel to get to the, to the seats, that the green grass was overwhelming. It was something he'd never seen before. And so that's sort of the way it was, I think, with me at Fenway Park. It was just like there was so much to take in, and I was so young that I just was trying to get everything I could get in one day. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy. So, No, certainly, it, I think it's sensory overload and for everybody that I've been fortunate to have conversations with so far, if their first experience was one of, in one of those old style parks, like, you know, for me at Tiger Stadium or Wrigley Field, for my father, it was, it was Crosley Field. Uh, now you talking about Fenway and some of the other places, you're right. You would have to go like through this dark bank tunnel type of thing. And then you would come up and there would be hopefully a sunny day. And then the green of the grass was just always overwhelming. It was, you know, sensory overload for, you know, little kids, I think. I, I can't imagine a first experience like that as an adult, but as a child, it was just, you know, just overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, I was even at the age at that point where I hadn't even played Little League yet. So, you know, that was, it really was something that was like completely foreign to me. Uh, but my uncle was a great coach. He, he knew, he knew the things that I needed <laughs> to see. So, that's fantastic. What a great story. Now, did you, were you fortunate enough to see um, Ted Williams play again um, after that, or was that your lone experience yeah, well, with I, him? I, I lived in Boston almost through the end of, of Ted's career. And so okay. I got to see him on dozens of occasions over, over the course of the mid to late fifties. Um, and I have memories of certain moments. I remember 
distinctly, I mean, I think I was about 10 when he hit his 400th home run. And as he circled the bases and crossed home plate, he spit at the press box. Just the kind of relationship that Ted had with the, with the Boston press. Um, because in those days, you know, there were about seven or eight different newspapers in Boston and they were all trying to get the latest story or, and, and he was never real happy with the things that they had to say. So he just took it out on him as he crossed home plate on his 400th home run. But I also got a ball signed by him during spring tra- during batting practice at Fenway one day. And I still have, I still have that baseball. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a great experience watching him play and, Unfortunately, the Red Sox were never competitive with the Yankees in the 1950s. And yeah. the Yankees would come in and the you know, Mantle and, and Barra and all those guys. And, and I remember watching Mantle hit a home run to center field that, that honestly, I've never seen a ball hit that hard ever. And Jimmy Pearsall, who was maybe the greatest center fielder of the day, in those days, ball players would never just stand and watch a home run. They would always go back to the fence, even as a courtesy to the pitcher, mm-hmm. giving up a 400-foot home run. But Pearsall literally never moved because the ball got over his head so quickly going up into the center field stands. He didn't have a moment to even react to it. So seeing Mantle and all that stuff. But, of course, as most kids who are Red Sox fans, the, the Yankees are the evil empire, you know. So the, the running joke is my favorite team is the Red Sox and my second favorite team is whoever's yeah. playing the Yankees today. So that, you know, that rings true here in, in my part of the country where it's, you know, I'm, I'm a Michigan fan and I'm, my second favorite team is whoever's playing Ohio state or yeah. something along go. those lines. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah I, that Yankee um, Red Sox rivalry is something now uh, you certainly it sounds like you've experienced it in person before then I would say. Yes. Yes. And, you know, luckily, you know, the Red Sox eventually have become, you know, a much more storied franchise than they were in the 1950s. And, and so they've, you know, they've captured those championships and recovered from the, from the 1986 loss to the Mets and all that sort of stuff. And, and now they, they, they sit really in the upper echelon of baseball franchises in the 1950s. They weren't like that. Yeah. Well, um, much was made as, as the Sox became much more competitive and ultimately won the world series. Um, there was much made about the, the curse of, you know, Babe Ruth or whatever. And that whole trade was that even prevalent during your youth when you were there in in Boston or had that, did uh, that become something more after the fact? No, it, it, it was because it happened, you know, in the 1920s, um, everybody still talked about it, the curse of the Bambino and, and you know, all that sort of things. And, and the, the, the money was used to produce a Broadway play called No, No, Nanette, which never really was successful either. So, yeah, there was, there was always that. I mean, the, the Babe Ruth thing is just something that I don't think it'll ever stop hanging over the franchise, you know, it's, uh, it, it was it was interesting, and as you read stuff about it, you find you know, that that there were all kinds of interesting little ins and outs, and and whether whether Ruth was really going to be a pitcher or a hitter. I mean, most people, unless they're longtime fans, they may not even understand how 
good a pitcher Babe Ruth was. I mean, he set World Series records mm-hmm. in the teens and, you know, before he, before he became a full-time player. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like baseball is your, your wheelhouse or your primary love. Is that accurate? Yes, yes. It's, it's my passion. I mean, I'm a sports fan in general, and, and I certainly have an affiliation to you know, other Boston franchises, especially the Celtics. Um, it's, it's a sad week for Celtic fans having lost Bill Russell. So, uh, but I got to see him play in the 1950s, and, and uh, I have wonderful recollections of those teams because um, I remember it's interesting as we talk about sports today, it's a completely different environment than it was when I was a kid. I mean, when I was a kid, there was no internet, there was no ESPN or anything like that. And the Boston fans didn't really know anything about Bill Russell um, other than he had won, you know, two national championships at Mm -hmm. USF, but that's 3000 miles from Boston. You know, they, most people have never even seen him play. And so when the Celtics decided to give up two pretty popular players to get the draft rights to Russell, I remember even at age 10 or whatever, people were saying, well, that's just stupid. Why would they do that? You know, and, and no one really knew what to expect. And, and even then there was a delay because Russell was on the 56 Olympic team and the Olympics were in Australia that year. Mm-hmm. So with the, with the different climate, they didn't have the, the Olympics till like October. So Russell never even played the first like 15 games of the season for the Celtics. Uh, because he was on the Olympic team, along with Jerry West and Oscar Robertson and some other great players. But I remember going to a game. Uh, it would, I'd like to think it was Russell's first game, but I don't think that that's, you know, I, I don't want to go that far. But it was in, let's say, January of 57. So mm-hmm. maybe when he had been on the team for a month or so. And I remember it like it was yesterday because if you were a basketball fan and, and you'd seen games or seen them on TV, most teams pretty much played the same way all the time. There was no real big differences in the, in the, in the style of play. And they were playing the New York Knicks at Boston Garden, and Russell was in the lineup. And I remember how much he dominated the game. The Celtics won the game by like 30-plus points. And Russell scored, if you can imagine this, Russell scored two points in the game. But he had 17 rebounds and blocked who knows how many shots. And, and I remember the Knicks had a, a guy at center who was an all-star player named Harry Gallatin. But he was about probably about 6'6". And he was famous for his hook shot. And the first time he tried a hook shot against Russell, the ball ended up like about 12 rows into the seats. And, and Gallatin, I checked the box score yesterday before our conversation Gallatin yeah. went, went one for 10 from the field that night trying to play against Bill Russell. And so watching that game, it was, it was like the game of basketball changed when Bill Russell came into the league. That no one played that style. No one played that kind of defense. Nobody was a team player like Russell was. And just him getting those rebounds and getting the ball out to Bob Cousy and those running up and down the court. It was like, you know, it was like something no one had ever seen before. There, were, there was never a player that dominant in the league. Um, George Mike in a little bit in the late 40s, but that, you know, not enough to really matter. But 
Russell changed the face of the NBA. And people that are not old enough to have seen or remember that don't really understand the impact that he had on the game. Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I I certainly never saw him. I'm I'm uh, 55, and if I saw him ever play, I I'm not aware of it. Um, have seen plenty of the highlights, uh, grainy though they may be. And you're absolutely correct. He was, you know, he he took the NBA from, you know, a game that was one way, and he it was a 180 degree shift. I think after he came into the league and and changed things and. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know who the two players were that were traded. You referred to them. I'm going to look that one up, but well, I can't imagine that they combined to measure were. up to who Bill Russell was. Yeah, well, who were they? The, the one player was had been on the team for a couple of years. His name was Ed McCauley, and Easy Ed was his nickname, and the fans loved him, and so he was one of the players in the trade. The other player was another draft pick, and that was uh, Cliff Hagen who oh. became a very good player. And, yeah. and they, they, those two players were traded to the St. Louis Hawks for the, for the rights to uh, Russell. And ironically enough, the Hawks and the Celtics played that year in the NBA Finals. And the Celtics won in seven games in 1957. Hmm. So kind of ironic that both teams ended up, it ended up being a win-win situation, but not in the long run. So. Yeah, I was going to say, did the how long did the Hawks general manager last after that? But clearly he made it through the rest of the season if they made it to the finals. That's okay. Well, and the Hawks actually won one of the years the Celtics didn't win. They won 11 of 13 titles with Russell. One of the years they didn't win was when the Hawks beat them in like either 58 or 59. Because the Hawks had not only the, those two players, but they also had a great all-star player named Bob Pettit. Yeah. So. Yeah, they, they had a very, very good team. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was always a great matchup when they played. But I will tell you that the, the Russell thing, I think, is generational to a large extent. Because I've listened to broadcasters and talk about, you know, the, who, who's the Mount Rushmore of the NBA and all that sort of stuff. And, and I think that the guys aren't old enough to understand Russell's impact on the sport seem to think that he's not in that, doesn't have that criteria, which is absolutely crazy. And like, I know um, one broadcaster was on Fox Network, Fox Sports one day saying that Will Chamberlain was better than Bill Russell. And, you know, I can have that conversation with people all day long if they like, you know, when uh, in, a, in Russell, Russell and Chamberlain played against each other in like 10 elimination games over the course of the NBA history, and Russell won eight of them. Chamberlain won two. And Chamberlain was a very – he wanted to picture himself as an unselfish player because if, if he got criticized for not passing enough, then he'd go out and just pass. If he got <laughs> criticized for not blocking shots, he'd just go out and block shots. He was, you know – but at the end of the day, Will Chamberlain was his success had more to do with his physicality than it had to do with his talent. Bill Russell was six nine. Will Chamberlain was seven one or seven two. And the comment I made to somebody in this in this debate was, if if Will Chamberlain had been six nine and Bill Russell had been seven one, Will Chamberlain would have been a backup. Okay, so I, I just think that people had that weren't around in those years didn't understand because Russell played him to a standstill 
when they played against each other. Yeah. And there's not a lot of footage of that, right? So it's, it's hard to even comprehend it for the future generations that were never able to, to see it in person or, you know, live at that time. Um, so like, let's not leave Boston yet because I think there's also a pretty decent hockey team that was out there with some players. Did you, were you a hockey fan at all? I was, I was, I followed the Bruins. Of course, in those years, there was, there were only six teams yep. in the National Hockey League and uh, two of them were in Canada and uh, the Bruins were, they were fun to watch, but they were never competitive because the Canadians were essentially the New York Yankees of the National Hockey League. Yeah. I mean, they, they literally had an all-star team out on, on the ice every night. And so I hated the Canadians like I hated the Yankees. I mean, that's, you know, that's the way it works. But, um, but I did enjoy following hockey. I became a, a, a fan. And uh, one of the interesting anecdotes, though, is that one of the players on the Canadians in the 50s who was pretty famous was a guy named Bernie Boom Boom Jeffreyon. Mm-hmm. He, he had a great slap shot and all that sort of stuff. So probably about 30 years ago, I was doing um, a speaking engagement at a convention in Las Vegas. And the opening night welcome reception party was sponsored by the Miller Brewing Company. Yep. And this was in the years where Miller was doing the commercials about taste great, less filling. And they always had athletes, you know, on, on like Bob Uecker and people like that. And yeah. they had, and, and Bernie, Je- Boom Boom Jeffreyon had been one of the players on that. So for this welcome party, Miller brought a couple of these athletes, you know, as part of the party. And so one of them happened to be Boom Boom Jeffreyon. So I couldn't help myself. Of course, this is like, you know, 35 years after the fact, but I went over to him and introduced myself. And I said, I grew up in Boston as a kid when I used to watch you guys. And he said, I said, I just want you to know that I, I really hated the Canadians. And he looked at me and smiled and he said, yeah, we sure kicked their arse, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's. Boom Boom had a a sense of humor, but, uh, but the memories of watching hockey in the fifties were great because, you know, you get to see all the teams because there were only six teams. So I got to see Rocket Richard and Gordy Howe and, you know, those kind of players. I got to see those guys. And even though we didn't beat them very often. Yeah. And so you missed um, Orr then? He wasn't until the 60s, I'm imagining? Right. Yeah. Orr, yeah. like middle 60s. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I mean, in just Boston Garden, can you just give us a couple of thoughts on what the garden was like? Well, one of the great thing about the garden, and this had more to do with Boston and the way it was configured, but the Boston garden had, if you took a streetcar in Boston and you wanted to go to the garden, the streetcar actually went into the building. So you didn't have to go out on the street. And what that meant for kids like me is our parents would let us go to the games essentially unsupervised because we'd get on the streetcar outside our house or our apartment building. And for a nickel, you know, the streetcar would take you and you'd go into the Boston garden 
and you could buy a ticket for like a Bruins game for like a dollar and sit in like the fourth level up near up near the roof, you know. Yeah. Um, which and the only advantage to that is it puts you further away from the rats that were down <laughs> in the bottom level. But <laughs> but oh. it, it allowed it allowed kids to do stuff that you wouldn't allow them to do today. And so going to the garden was a great treat because you know you could get three or four guys and and if mom and dad had splurged for a, a, a dollar or two, you could go you could go to a Celtics game or a Bruins game. It was wonderful. Uh, it wasn't a very comfortable place, and it had no air conditioning. So if if it was you know time of the year where it got a little warmer, you know that, that would be uncomfortable too. But we didn't care. We were kids. You know, when you're kids, you don't care. Yeah, no, you 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 really don't. And I yeah, I was fortunate enough that I. My wife allowed us to tour Boston Garden on our honeymoon. Um, wow. Okay. It was during the, you know, it was um, after I think the season was over. It would have been in May. Maybe the Celtics were out of town. I know the, the, the uh, Bruins were not actively playing, but we got to take a tour. That was as close as I came to seeing a game there. But I remember going into the visiting locker room and then pointing out that this is where they would stick you know, Shaquille O'Neal and these other giants who, and because of the way the, the stands kind of came up at an angle, uh, that one part of the locker room was only like six feet tall or something. So, <laughs> and, and yeah, the, the air conditioning at the time and all the other things, it was a, a wonderful tour. And I'm so happy that I saw it because it wasn't too much longer than that. They, they put up the new place and yeah, I, I love the old, the old barns. Those are fun. Yeah. It was, it's, it has great memories for me. Um, well, let's let's move to Southern California if we can, much like you did. Um, and you referenced earlier that it it was a tough week because of the passing of, of Bill Russell. But we also, as we record this, we recently lost Vin Scully, yes. who was as someone who spent some time in Southern California. I'm sure that you have some memories of him as well, right? Yeah, I do. And and actually, they go they actually go back to Boston because in the, in the mid fifties. There was this wonderful new invention that came out called the transistor radio, and and of course after driving my parents crazy that uh, for a number of months they finally broke down and got me one of these transistor radios so I could listen to Kirk Gowdy do the play-by-play of the Red Sox games, and then what you found of course is in the evening transistor radios could pick up broadcasts that were that were significantly far away, and yeah. so. The Dodgers were only 200 miles from Boston. And so on my transistor radio, I could hear Ben Scully um, talking about the boys of summer. I mean, that's how I learned about Jackie Robinson and Gil Hodges and Pee Wee Reese and all those wonderful players of the 1950s. And so I was a big fan of Scully as a kid and a big fan of Gowdy. And of course, they're, they're two iconic people in, in the history of the game as far as announcers are concerned. Gowdy went on to do all kinds of network work and you know uh, football and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was interesting that the you know the Dodgers left for Los Angeles in 1958 and I left for Los Angeles in 1960 um, and there was Ben Scully you know waiting for me <laughs> in LA so I could listen to Dodger games again. Because uh, again, 
growing up, the Braves were already gone from Boston. So the Dodgers were my National League team. The Red Sox were my American League team. So getting to California and having Ben Scully still be on my transistor radio was pretty cool. Um, and uh, having they did have to play for a number of years in, a, in the Coliseum, which was really a reconfigured Olympic venue. Yeah. Was not meant for baseball to be played in it. I mean, the, it was 250 feet down the left field line and about 400 feet down the right field line. But um, but the Dodgers then turned things around once they got there and they won the they won the World Series. And I, and I think the year before I got there, 1959. And then in '62 they opened Dodger Stadium, which is again one of now one of the iconic places. But um, I mean, I was just just old enough to drive when Dodger Stadium opened. And so um, I spent a lot of time there over the years in Southern California. Now, you you said Vin was there to greet you in 1960 when you arrived. Could you, at that time, have ever imagined that, what, 55 years later, he would still be um, coming into your living room or your ears or or however however you chose to receive him? Yeah, it, it was amazing, really. And, and you know, he he was such a nice man. And everything that you hear about him from people in the game um, is all true. I mean, every, you know, we got to see him up close and personal in L.A., but he was exactly as you would picture him. He was, he was nice to everybody. He never had, there was no ego involved at all. And, you know, I wrote a blog about him about four years ago when he retired. And I commented in the blog that Ben Scully had such an influence on the listeners that you could almost keep score. You could be the scorekeeper, the official scorer, only by listening to Ben Scully and the inflection that he would make on a play. So in other words, if he was announcing and there was a ground ball to third base and he says, uh, Santo bobbles it, picks it up, um, he's not going to get him. Well, you knew that was an error. I mean, you knew that was an error. You could mark it down on your book. But if the, sa- if the same play happened the following inning and Scully said something like, it's a hot shot, the third, bounces off Santos' chest, Fairley's going to be safe. And you knew that that was a hit. Huh. And so, you know, Vin Scully's voice basically told you what was going on in the game. And he knew when not to talk. I remember when Koufax pitched the perfect game. And uh, when the game ended on a, on a third strike, Scully didn't say anything for about 30 seconds. He just let the crowd be the broadcast. And so he understood that he was an observer, that he wasn't the person that was making the history. Other people were making the history. And so I don't think most announcers understand that whole process. He was so good at that. And so uh, we all miss him. We all miss him. Yeah. I know. I was just talking to a, a friend the other day about, you know, that era of broadcaster and how they just, instinctively intuitively seem to know when to let you know everything breathe a little bit and let the fans take over and carry the moment as opposed to feeling like they have to insert themselves and i fear that that is um if it isn't gone now it's it's slowly going away it seems like most most of their play-by-play folks feel like they have to fill the void with something and 
Well, and, and, a, and they also you get into the you get into the situation where I think one of the things that that struck home for me is when I when I got the my first car that had satellite radio in it, yeah. and I could I could listen to broadcasts from other parts of the country. It brought it home to me as to how much better Scully was than anybody else. Because when you listen to these other broadcasts, 90% of the guys doing the games were just homeless. They were, you know, they, they were complaining about the umpire's call. They were, you know, Vin Scully would never do that. You could listen to, you could listen to a game for Vin Scully and sometimes you really wouldn't be able to tell which team he was working for. And, and with the guys that are doing games now, you know exactly who they're working for. They're, yeah. you know, they're using first names instead of last names or whatever the case may be. And so that it just separates. Scully's just so separated from all of that that it just made it so great. And he never had anybody else in the booth with him either. He, he never had a call him out. Yeah. Because he could, he could do that. He didn't need somebody to, to embellish his broadcast. And we um, we here in Southeast Michigan were blessed to have Ernie Harwell with us for a long time, and yes, and you know, similar similar vein. Although he did have a, a color commentator, but it was not a, a former athlete; it was another broadcaster, and and they just had these these melodic tones about them that you know put this kid to bed many a night listening to, especially when the Tigers were on the West Coast. That was heaven for me. Um, was to have an opportunity to turn on a, a game at 10 o'clock my time and and drift off to sleep with with Ernie and, and Paul Carey. Um, there's nothing better than that. And and I agree. Uh-huh. Satellite radio has been great. It's, it's afforded me the opportunity to do that same thing now all the time. But it um, you know, you're you're able to tell, you know, who understands how to call a game and, and maybe who doesn't. Yeah. Harwell was great. And I, I loved it when he he'd throw in like the name of some obscure town in Michigan that a foul ball go into the seats and he'd say somebody from so-and-so caught a foul ball. You know, he yeah. was great with that stuff. People love that. that was... Yeah, I know the, the, the first time I heard that, I, I turned to my dad, I go, how does he know where that person's from? And he just got this big <laughs> grin on his face. And I'm not sure my father ever told me, never, never gave up the ruse, but I learned, you know, later on, obviously, but yeah, um, he yeah. had a real, real ability and a way to do it. Yeah, he's got. He's a special place in the industry, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, so, Southern California, and you came in '60. So, you did you uh, get to see any of UCLA basketball during their heyday? Luckily for me, when I was uh, when I was working my way through college, um, my boss, the owner of the business that I worked for, had two season tickets to UCLA games at Pauley Pavilion. Now, most of the time his, his wife would go with him, but when his wife didn't feel like going for whatever reason, I was, I was like the backup. So uh, it was a wonderful experience because I got to see this all started about the time that, that the, the team started to get great in the mid sixties. And I remember sitting in Pauley Pavilion when uh, in those days, of course, freshman basketball players were not allowed to play on the varsity. And so I'm going to a game one night with my boss and it's the freshman team is playing an exhibition game against the varsity team. This is before the regular season starts. And the freshman team included 
Lou Elsindor <laughs> yeah. and Keith Wilkes and Lynn Shackelford and a few other names that people would remember. And, and it was an amazing experience because they beat the varsity by about 25 points. And everybody in LA had to wait a year. They had to wait a year before Alcindor was playing varsity basketball the following year. And so it, it was amazing. To, I remember that night because people in the stands were just like, they couldn't believe how good that guy at that size was. I mean, he was, he was so fluid. You know, most guys, seven, two, and that sort of stuff, you don't see that kind of athleticism. And, and he was just absolutely amazing, even in those days before he became Kareem, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we, yeah, I, I had the opportunity to see quite a few UCLA games during that era. It was great fun. Um, now, you referenced Al Cinder there, and I know that he certainly was taller than Russell, but did he, how, how did, he, how would you compare him to Russell in terms of style of game and, and, impact well, on the he, game. Um, Alcindor was m- much more offensively um, impactful than, than Russell was. Russell, Russell didn't care about scoring points. He had enough players around him that he didn't worry about. Alcindor was an offensive player. And, and so he had great skills on offense from the sky hook to everything else. I mean, even when they, for some period of time, they like made it illegal to dunk, you know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine if they did that in the NBA today? People would go on strike. But um, Alcindor, so his defensive prowess wasn't a focus of his game. He was good on defense because of his size and his positioning, but he didn't focus on defense the way Russell did. I think those, that's essentially the, the biggest difference between them was one guy was more of an offensive player, one guy was more of a defensive player. Yeah. I, I um, receive, um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar does a, a newsletter of some sort, like a, a essentially a blog or what have you. And I've been subscribing for about the last six weeks um, at the recommendation of a friend. And um, he had a wonderful, wonderful remembrance of um, his first meeting with Bill Russell um, at his high school. Lou was in high school at what Powers or whatever, and right down the street from Madison Square Garden. And he was walking in as a freshman and and he sees the Boston Celtics there practicing and he's like, what in the heck is going on? And um, eventually his coach is talking apparently to Red Auerbach, Coach Auerbach, and they call him over and, and Auerbach calls Russell over and, and um, there's something about being a kid. And he, he said that Russell always referred to him as kid ever since. Didn't matter. And it wasn't until many years later when he was filming a, uh, a commercial with um, Russell and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, that he got up the the gumption apparently to ask for an autograph of Russell because he was that in awe of him. Um, and uh, Russell signed the the jersey, the Celtics jersey that that um, Kareem had had for him, and he made some reference about any time kid or something like that. Still, you know, as grown adults, still referring to him as kid. But it was a wonderful story. Russell had a great personality and and. A- wonderful sense of humor and um and people just people gravitated to him he also had and this you see this in kareem later but he also had a lot um, he was very involved with the social aspect of 
things that were going on at that time. Um, and I'm sure that Russell's um, influence had a lot to do with Kareem being involved in that sort of stuff. So that if you go back and you look, for example, when Muhammad Ali was going through his legal stuff, you would see uh, like a press conference and there would be the people there supporting him. And you'd see Jim Brown and you'd see Bill Russell and you'd see Kareem, you know, and, and, and other African-American uh, athletes. And, and I'm sure Russell had a big influence on because of exactly what you're describing there. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Kareem indicated as much. I'll, I'll forward that to you and I'll even try to get it up on, on my website so that other folks can enjoy it. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful remembrance and, and Kareem said something he really, you know, was remiss in doing for many years and he felt really necessary to get something out there about that. So, yeah. Well, terrific. I mean, those are, fantastic recollections Don I, I feel as though I'm not worthy um, but I, I know there's there has to be more right uh, what, what else uh, what else did you uh, find enjoyable about the um, sports fan scene in Southern California once you got there well one of the things that was interesting for me um, because I grew up watching Ted Williams play in 1961 Major League Baseball had some expansion. And one of the teams was the Los Angeles Angels. So the first year that the Angels played, they played in a minor league ballpark that was called Wrigley Field. And the yep. reason it was called Wrigley Field is because it had originally been built by the Cubs franchise for their AAA team that they had all those years in Southern California. But it was a pretty, by this time, by 1961, it was a pretty old, dilapidated ballpark but it was it looked just like Wrigley Field I mean it had you know the ivy covered walls and all that sort of stuff and so uh, luckily for me I got to go to a game so I was 15 I got to go to a game in that in that inaugural year of the Angels when the Red Sox were here playing were in LA playing and the the rookie left fielder in 1961 of course was Carl Yastrzemski and the year before had been Williams last year. And so it was almost like a passing of the torch kind of thing to see this new kid, number eight, replacing the old hero, number nine. And you think about it, the Red Sox only had two left fielders for the good part of 35 or 40 years. <laughs> I mean, it went from Williams played from 39 to 60. And Yastrzemski started in 61 and played well through the 80s. And so you only had two guys play that position for the Red Sox for all those years. And I got to see Yaz as a rookie in the old Wrigley Field in, in L.A. And that, that experience was, I, I still see that in my brain because being a Red Sox fan and a Williams fan, the transition was incredible. And then, of course, by 62, the Dodgers had built their new ballpark and the Angels actually played there for the next few years before they moved to Anaheim. So they were only at Wrigley one year. Wrigley is, the old Wrigley in L.A. is also the place where, I don't know if you go back this far, you may have seen it on a rerun somewhere, is also the ballpark where they filmed Home Run Derby in the 1950s. So if you ever catch one of those on like ESPN Classic or something, you got, you know, Willie Mays against Hank Aaron or something like that. And and the winner got like a thousand dollars. Okay. Yeah. 
But those game, those home run derby uh, sessions were filmed at Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. Yeah, that was as you started down that path. That was going to be my guess, but I had I did not know that for certain. But yeah, I've seen those, and those are good fun. Yeah, they um, are great fun. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. I mean, almost every player on that series is today is in the Hall of Fame. I mean, if you think about it, you know. Yeah, they, the the uh, the producers were not fooling around. They they certainly had an eye for talent and were able to secure it. And of course, in those days, uh, I would imagine a thousand dollar first prize or a, a win was you know worth the time and and energy sure. and effort it would have taken to do that. I'm not sure it's you could get a player. Were... You could get a player out of their hotel room today for a thousand dollars. I'm guessing. Well, obviously, because of Southern California climate, they were able to film that stuff during the off season and not interfere with anybody's schedules. You know, so it yeah. worked out pretty well. Yeah. Um, anything else from your time in Southern California that stands out uh, to you? Well, of course, I you know I, the Lakers, you know, were, were a great franchise, and I got to see them quite often. And and I also you know in in like 1967. The NHL finally, you know, expanded. I mean, they beyond expanded, they multiplied, basically created almost a whole new league. But the Kings, the LA Kings came into being in, in 67 or 68. And I, I got a chance to go to see a lot of the, a lot of the King games when, when Marcel Dion and Rogie Vashon and some great players, they, they never were championship caliber team, but they were always entertaining. And the Lakers, of course, had all those great stars. But it, my conflict was always that they'd be playing in the finals against the Celtics. You know, if you go back and look at the 1960s, I mean, how many times that they were, were up against each other? So um, I couldn't be a Laker fan when we were playing the Celtics. But I, I, did, I did spend a lot of time watching the Lakers play in those years. Yeah. And, nice. and I got a chance to see the Angels, you know, a lot, even after they moved down to Anaheim. It wasn't a big deal to go down there it's like an hour away now with the traffic today it's probably two hours away but you know it was uh, so i got to see all those great players i was in i was in angel stadium um the night that george brett got his 3,000th hit and what was interesting is it came into the game with 2,996 hits and then he, and he went four for four so I don't think the average person did not go to the game expecting to see his 3,000th hit, but he he got it that night, and that was that was that was a great moment. Yeah. What was the uh, what was the the reaction there? Oh, just you know, the fans were were uh, very very good about it and and good. appreciated appreciated the fact that they were watching a, a future Hall of Famer and all that. So yeah, yeah, it wasn't there wasn't any negativity. Well, I, I didn't imagine there would be negativity. I just didn't know if it was a, uh, you know, full-throated, you know, support or, or how it was. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I think each hit that he got, it jacked the crowd up just a little bit more because absolutely. they were thinking, "Hey, wait, I'm going to get a chance. I may get a chance to see history tonight," and that's how it turned out. Yeah. Any, uh, any, I know he wasn't there. Well, he was there for a, a fair amount of time. But any uh, Nolan Ryan experiences of note? While you were in the, in the well, California I mean, area, yeah, Ryan was uh, you know Ryan was amazing, and uh, we got to see for those of us that lived in Southern California, we got to see a number of his no hitters. Um, 
I remember watching at least one of them on TV when he, it was in Kansas City, and uh, he was he was amazing. But the teams weren't very good. You know, he had a lot of seasons where he would be like 18 and 15, you know, with 350 strikeouts or something like that. He had no uh, and and he was honestly, if you look back at pitching in general, he was like a complete unicorn when it came to he was never injured and and he never pitch counts didn't matter. And, you know, he was just a throwback guy and uh, and a very nice guy, too. I will tell you this in the uh, I'm a season ticket holder here in, in this community that I live in for the Royals and Rangers spring training. They, they have spring training here in Surprise, Arizona, which is where I live. And when Ryan was an executive with the Rangers, um, he would always be in the first row next to the Ranger dugout. And, of course, they always had security standing down there to make sure that he wasn't bothered during the game because everybody wants an Nolan Ryan autograph. But what Ryan would do was he would give the, the ushers and the security people permission to let people up on the concourse, to let them start getting in line around the seventh inning stretch. And then as soon as the game was over, they would al allow the people to come down the aisle and, and Ryan would sign for every one of those people that was in line up on the concourse. Wow. And so, you know, in a lot of cases, it would be 75 or 100 people would be standing up there with a baseball or a program or something else. And he would just sit down there and, and sign until, until the end of the line. And so he was as good about that as, as anybody I've ever seen. The other guy that was the best was Josh Hamilton when he played for the Rangers. You know, most players in spring training, when they get out of the game in the fifth inning, they had, they, they walk as far away from the stands as they can to get to the clubhouse. Hamilton would walk right down the foul line and turn to the stands and just sign autographs. And sometimes, you know, someone would say to him, you know, you're in the field of play and he'd go, leave me alone. <laughs> it's an exhibition game. So Hamilton was great. And, and I think he, because of what he went through in his life, I yep. think he was very appreciative of his, of his place and how much it meant to people, how much it meant to the game. And he, I never saw him ever, turn anybody down for anything so it's always great to have those you you know athletes get a get a pretty bad rap these days and sometimes it's well deserved but there's always good guys too you know so the nicest yeah, guy i ever met i have an extensive autograph collection the nicest guy i ever met getting autographs over the years um was ernie banks i mean i can't even begin to tell you what ernie banks was like he there were like 50 people behind me in line at this massive, you know, baseball card collectors event over a weekend. And all he wanted to do was talk about the baseball that I was having him sign because I had him sign a ball that had other members of the 500 room home run club on it. So it had Frank Robinson and Harmon Killebrew and, and Williams and a few others. And Ernie, all Ernie wanted to do was look at that ball and talk to me about all the players that were on that ball and, and the, you know, the, the promoters of the show at some point kind of had to like tap him on the shoulder and say, Ernie, we got a lot of people in line now, you know? So honestly, he was the nicest man. And, and the other one that was really great was Musial. Musial was just, 
as down home, nice guy as you could ever meet. You know, he walked into he walked into a collectible show one morning when the, the door was going to open at 10 o'clock and there were a bunch of people in line. And he and Red Shandings walked in because they walked over from their hotel. And he looked at all the people in line and he said, are you folks waiting for me? And everybody went, well, yeah, we are. And he was wearing a sport jacket, no tie. Uh-huh. And then he proceeded to, to reach into a sport jacket and pull out a harmonica. And we all sang, take me out to the ball game together in the lobby of the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium before the show opened. That's what Musial was like. That, that's how he was with fans. So it's always great to, you know, I have about 200 autographed Sports Illustrated covers and there's a story behind each one of them. But when you ask me the best guys, Banks and Musial were probably the two best guys. Yeah. Well, we referenced at the, uh, at the onset of this uh, podcast that you um, are a consultant now at, at AZ Sports Cards in the Phoenix area, in Phoenix, uh, over near uh, Glendale, right? Like close to the Cardinal Stadium, I think. Right. Um, and you just alluded to the fact that you've got a pretty extensive collection of different types of memorabilia yourself. How, how did you get started in that? And, and how has that kind of, you know, I guess, transformed over the course of your time being engaged in that uh, collector's endeavor? Well, like most kids, most kids of the 50s, I collected baseball cards. They were they were nickel a pack and had a and you also got a piece of chewing gum for that nickel. And um, but unfortunately, as again, like most kids, um, when I'm when we moved from Boston to Southern California, the baseball card collection did not make it with me. Um, I'm sure my mom had a, a reason for that, but uh, it didn't. So I never really I didn't collect them after I got to L.A. until about the 1980s, when the hobby started to blossom a little bit. And there were some baseball card stores in the the area where I lived. And so I started collecting again in the 1980s and um, and built some nice vintage sets. I have three sets from the 1950s that are complete. and so as I kept on collecting and kept on meeting people in the industry and all the rest of it, then I had a friend of mine who opened a, a baseball card shop in, in Southern California in the late 80s. And I, I helped him a little bit in my spare time. And, uh, and so it just kind of became uh, much more of a hobby than I originally had anticipated. And then when I moved to, to Arizona um, looking for things to do, um, I just decided to, to try to get into, you know, maybe buying and selling collections. And so I got some good advice from some people that I'd met here, local dealers and such, and how to get involved with eBay and how to, how to do all that. And so uh, for the last, you know, dozen years or so, I've been, I've been doing that. And I mean, it comes from, in a lot of cases, I would advertise on websites like you know, Craigslist and things like that. And then I'd get referrals from one people, one person to another. And, and then I'd meet people at baseball card shows and baseball card shops. And so, um, you know, I developed kind of developed this business, which was great because it's not something that's, you know, going to put you on Forbes 500 list, 
but it's but it is it's an avocation. And so for me, every collection is a project, and it and it keeps me busy, and it and it's great fun, and it helps me reminisce about the players when I grew up. And so when John bought the store six and a half years ago, um, he asked if I would be if I'd be available to help, and and of course I. I thought it would be wonderful to spend some time there, get to talk to people about their collections and all that. And so it's just morphed itself into, uh, you know, almost a full-time activity. Uh, interestingly, based the baseball card industry or the sports card industry was one of the few things that really flourished because of the pandemic. Um, because everybody was home, they were either working from home or they uh, had other reasons to be home. There were no sports on TV, they, you know, and everybody went searching through their house for all the stuff that they'd had sitting in a box for who knows how long. Now, of course, a lot of them had watched too many episodes of Antiques Roadshow and thought they were going to become rich with this stuff in the box. And as you have already alluded to, the yeah. stuff from the 80s and 90s isn't going to make anybody rich. But a lot of people did find stuff that was valuable and started bringing it in. Um, and so we, the last couple of years has been like over the top. An example, just a quick one is like last Saturday, we had a couple walked in the door. I, if I had to guess, I'd say they were in their sixties and they, and they had driven all the way from Yuma, which is about three hours away. And the cards belonged to the fellow's stepfather. And he put the box down on the counter and it was literally a shoe box from the 1950s from some brand that I'd never even heard of. And, and I opened up the box and I'm looking through it and it had basically baseball and football cards from the mid fifties. And that's the kind of stuff that I, that's what I'm waiting for. I mean, 90% of the stuff that comes in is I have to give people bad news in a lot of cases, but this was, you know, he had 56 Aaron, 56 Mays, 56 Williams, that kind of stuff. And on the football, he had, you know, 57 Paul Horning rookie and, you know, Raymond Berry rookie and stuff like, you know, stuff that collectors really are looking for, especially in nice condition. Now, the, a lot of those cards will have to be graded in order to market them properly. But still, that's the kind of stuff that will come across the counter in, in a lot of cases. And so that. That makes my day when I when I find a project like that. It makes my day. Um, you you touched on the fact that the '80s and '90s were were not good for me from an investment standpoint, but I can still reminisce, which is always fun. But sure. but in terms of um, what's happened, you know, these last I would say ten years or so with um, you know the transition to more <laughs> of the jersey cards or autograph cards or the other right. things that have kind of taken the uh, the system to uh, yeah the hobby I, I guess the, the hobby industry has gone to a different level. What what has the is, yeah the hobby is at a different level and it and it all started about twenty years ago. Um, and again, the hobby almost ruined them. It ruined itself, and they had to rethink it and reinvent it because in the eighties and nineties. Major League Baseball and the NFL and the NBA had all given out multiple licenses to a whole bunch of companies, and they'd all just cranked out the product to compete with each other, and it, and it just flooded the market. And even all these years later, there's literally no scarcity for that kind of stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so about 20 years ago, they got together and made a decision that they would go back to having essentially just one company for each sport and that they were going to make a higher end product to try to get people to be more interested. And the higher end product includes what you you were just describing, uh, autograph cards, uh, what they call relic cards, um, serial numbered cards for scarcity purposes, you know, all that sort of stuff. So the product itself is much more expensive, but the outcomes are much more valuable. And so if you buy a box of cards now, a sealed box that has packs in it, it's actually going to say right on the outside of the box that you're guaranteed a certain amount of autograph cards or a certain amount of memorabilia cards and that sort of thing. So you don't know which players are going to be. So there's a little bit of a gambling element involved to some extent, but that's part of the fun. And so then if you open a pack and you get a Tom Brady autograph card, for example, you know, you, you, you've gotten something that's really, really valuable. And that's, so it's kind of like, that's where the hobby has gone in the last 15 to 20 years. And it's why the stuff from the eighties and nineties just still has no value because they were new, no autograph cards in there at all. They wasn't, wasn't part of the program, but the new Um, stuff, the new stuff's great and it's, and it's beautiful and it's well done. And it's, you know, they make all kinds of different variations of cards and things like that. So um, it's, it's the hobbies, the hobbies just changed dramatically, but it's, change for the better yeah i i would i would tend to agree i haven't spent a lot of time in a in a shop in, in quite a while but just you know some of the reading that i've been able to do and some of the things that i've been able to to see online it, it looks incredible i mean i just read the piece i think espn just did something a week or two ago on the what the lebron james triple card or whatever where there's a Jersey fragment and an autograph from each of his three teams or something on the same card or whatever that is um, that you know, blew my mind in terms of, you know, what they're doing with, with uh, that hobby industry now. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, uh, great. So. Yeah. Um, do you all dabble in uh, what the non-fungible tokens in any capacity, the NFTs? No. No, that's, that, that's, we stick, we stick to basically cardboard. Well, it's not really cardboard anymore, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. we, we don't, we don't go out on the limb on that stuff. It's a, we're a much more traditional kind of shop. And I mean, we do sell non-sports things like Pokemon and things like that, that people, you know, like to collect, but those are cards too. So, I mean, it, it's just a non-sports card. That's all. Yeah. yeah. But no, we don't, we don't get involved with uh, stuff that, uh, we, we don't want to be part, we don't want to be part of that, of that circle of flush when it happens, you know, I don't, nah, not yeah, I've understood all to change that much. Yeah. Uh, you want to be able to hold whatever you're, you're purchasing, right? Yeah. And actually exactly. touch it and everything. Yeah. And I understand all of that. I mean, I follow it and I try to read, I try to read up on it be, and be on top of it, but it just isn't stuff that interests us. It's more, you know, we're more of the neighborhood kind of place, even though, we draw people from a wide area, but we like to have the atmosphere of a neighborhood shop. I describe it as the baseball card version of Cheers. All okay. Right? Because right in the middle of the store, there's a beautiful table with bar stools around it where people can sit. They can open up packs of cards. They can sit with their friends. They can talk about the game. I mean, part of the fun of me being there 
three days a week is just talking sports with people. You know, just like I'm talking with you now. We yeah. have these same conversations all the time. People and people love bringing in like trivia questions that I I may never have heard of before. I like I like to think I'm pretty knowledgeable on baseball, but you know, they're, they're, everybody's got something that they think is really a cool deal. You know, so uh, happens yeah. all the time, and so it's it's part of the fun. And you know, we have a lot of regular customers. It's like you know the, the cheers thing. Everybody knows your name. So the. Um... I'm going to backtrack for a hot second here because I know you referenced the, the, the boxes that can be bought now of cards or the cases. And it indicates that you've got, you know, so many of whatever in there, um, right. you know, there used to be, I think a school of thought that you wouldn't want to begin tearing into those because, you know, the value might go up or what have you in terms of investment purposes. Um, if you left them, you know, pristine and in the uh, container that you purchased them in, but is it now more in, in vogue to go ahead and, and tear them open and see what you have in there and, and then take the appropriate actions that are necessary to maintain and preserve the card? Let me, let me answer that this way. There's, there's essentially three kinds of customers in the hobby. Um, there are collectors, there are investors, and there are speculators. Um, I prefer to deal with the collectors and the investors uh-huh. and not so much with the speculators. So what you're describing is people speculating on a, an unopened box of cards may be worth more down the road than it is now. But it's going to be impacted dramatically or directly by the performance of the players in, from that year. So, for example, when I first got here, I invested... I invested heavily in unopened boxes of different brands of 2006 football. All right. Why did I do that? Because the 2006 draft had Matt Leinert, Reggie Bush, and Vince Young. And so those three guys were all going to be like the biggest thing since sliced bread. And so I put those boxes on the shelf. Okay. And five years later, I sold them at a loss. All right. Because you know what happened to those three guys. So that's the problem with speculating. And so I don't encourage people. I learned my lesson. It didn't cost that much, but I learned my lesson. And I don't I don't encourage people to do that. Now, I know there are people that do that. Uh, People will come into the shop and they go, who should I buy? You know, and and I I try to I try to skirt that issue a little bit. And I say, you need to look at the guys that are having the best seasons and the rookies and Julio Rodriguez and Aaron Judge and this and that. But what happens is the the hobby is still performance driven. And so when guys get injured or when guys don't live up to an expectation, the value of their expensive cards is going to go down. And so speculators are always, you know, they're in, in the horse racing industry, they used to call them bridge jumpers, you know. If you, you put too much money on a horse to show when he finishes fourth, you're going to jump, you're going to jump off the bridge. All right. So that's the way it is with speculators. So I, um, and it's a small percentage of our business. It's not, it's not a big percentage, but there are people not just with sealed boxes, but even with individual cards and individual players that they will say, well, this guy is going to be a, a hall of fame. So in other words, maybe, Maybe right now somebody thinks they should buy every Juan Soto card they can find, all right? 
and and I understand that. I mean, he looks like he's going to be a generational player, but everybody felt the same way about Mike Trout. But now Mike Trout's missed the last year and a half with injuries. And I will tell you that the market on his stuff has softened slightly. Not a lot because he's still a Hall of Fame player. Even if he, even if he quit tomorrow, he's still going to the Hall of Fame. But there is a softness, a little bit softness in his valuations because he's not on the field. And so you just have to take all of that into consideration when you're investing. And, and investment is different than speculating. Speculating is somebody that they're trying to get a guy when he first his first card or his rookie card, hoping he'll go through them. I mean, I, I remember years ago, a friend of mine pulled a, a Jesus Montero card out of like a Bowman Chrome product. It was an autograph card. It was numbered to like 50. And they were selling on eBay for three or $400. And Jesus Montero was still in the minor leagues. And she asked me, she said, what would you do? Should I, should I sell the card or should I keep it? And I said, let me tell you something about the Yankees, okay? Number one, the Yankees don't play rookies. The Yankees, if the Yankees in the pennant race, they're going to trade their minor leaguers to get the guy they need to win the pennant. I said, there's no guarantee this guy will ever be the Yankees catcher. I said, if he ends up on another team, then you just lost the Yankee nation as far as the demand factor is concerned. I said, I'm going to quote the old Woody Allen movie, and I'm going to tell you to take the money and run, all right? And she sold the car, okay? Now, yep. I don't know if you followed Jesus Montero's career, but if you wanted to buy that card today on eBay, you could probably buy it for five dollars. Um, Very so good. That's my story about speculating. Okay, and I, and I try to help people with that so they don't they don't spend money they don't have to spend. So, ladies and gentlemen, free advice from Don Drucker. <laughs> Thank you, sir. That was fantastic. Uh, uh, what? This is a, a terrific conversation. I could probably go on for quite a bit longer, but I, I know that um, you know you have a, a lovely day in the in the valley to enjoy and probably 115 degrees to get out into at some point. Um, and I've got a lawn to take care of here in 90 degree heat. So yay for that. I'm, um, even, I'm even going to a ball game tonight. Oh, well, will that be uh, indoors? I would imagine the roof will be closed, right? Yes, it is indoors. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I guess... Two more questions for you or, or thoughts or just try to get your, your take on this. Um, certainly the Phoenix area is a, a booming place these days in terms of just people and, and population growth and everything else. And, and I would say in large part, sports have kind of risen with that in terms of you know, major professional sports teams. What is, this, what is the, the scene like there as a sports fan? And have you grown an affinity for any of those you know, Phoenix area teams or do your loyalties still lie in Southern California and out East in Boston? Well, it, it depends on the sport. Um, obviously I'll always be a Red Sox fan. I mean, I would, I would like to see the Diamondbacks do well. I understand it's a struggle for a mid-market team to compete with the, the Dodgers and the Giants and now the Padres too. Um, but I mean, I support them and hope that they'll do well but I, I wouldn't say that I'm a fan in the sense of rooting for them. Um, same thing with the Suns. I mean, the last couple of years, the Suns basketball has been great and they've done a great job of, of rising up from a, a total mediocrity to being one of the best teams in the league. And, and essentially I have the same feeling about 
the sons that I would about, about them. Football is slightly different. I, uh, growing up in Boston, we didn't have a football team. Uh, the Patriots didn't come into being until I about the year I went to California. So growing up, I was a New York Giants fan um, because that was the closest team. They were only 200 miles away. And, they, and Chris Schenkel, by the way, was their play-by-play announcer. And they had Frank Gifford and they had Charlie Connerly and Alex Webster and Sam Huff. And, you know, it was a great team. So, but that didn't really stick because it was just kind of a temporary thing. So I think I root probably root for the Cardinals more than I do for the other sports teams here, only because I don't, it's not really a conflict for me. And yeah. uh, I'd like, I, I'd like to see them do well. And, uh, and I hope that they do. They made a big investment in Kyler Murray and we'll see, we'll see how that works out, you know, but, uh, but they sell out every game and it's uh that's a, it's a big, the Cardinals are big time here, big time, much bigger than certainly than the Diamondbacks. The Suns, the last couple of years are selling out all the time, but that has more to do with their most recent performance. But Sure. Hey, Coyotes, we, won't even, we won't even talk about the Coyotes, right? Yeah. The Coyotes, unfortunately, are an afterthought um, because they haven't done well. And now they've, their deal with their arena is over and they're going to have to play at least for two or three years, they're going to have to play at like a 5,000 seat venue at, at ASU. And uh, I'm just not sure. It's just not, there are a lot of hockey fans in Southern in uh, Arizona because they come from a lot of people have uh, migrated here from, you know, Minnesota and Wisconsin and places like that. But um, it isn't the same as the other sports at this point. Sure. Um yeah, I mean, I guess that enhances the chances that the Coyotes will have sellouts, right? If there's only five thousand seats, they will, they will sell out some games. Yes, yes, they're trying to build a new arena um, yeah. in, uh, near the airport. We'll see if that gets done. They haven't, they haven't got all the approvals yet. The one sure. thing that, that is the one thing that's consistently good here, um, especially for baseball fans, is the fact that not only we have spring training, which is wonderful i mean you know for five or six weeks every february and march you can you can see as much baseball as you want to see but we also have a thing that a lot of people don't even know about called the arizona fall league which goes in october november down here where all the major league teams send a lot of their best prospects down here and they play against each other and um it's uh it's more of a developmental program they don't really promote it very much i mean sometimes there's 500 people at the ballpark. Uh, but I'll give you an example. 10 years ago, if you went to a game in Scottsdale, two of the outfielders would have been Mike Trout and Bryce Harper. So uh, it's great to go see the young kids play, and it's very inexpensive. Tickets are like six or eight bucks, and you can sit anywhere you want. And so if you're a baseball fan, uh, Arizona's got some great year-round capabilities when it comes to baseball. Yeah, and we um, didn't even really – really touch on that the whole spring training concept and how everything is very concentrated there in the valley as opposed to the grapefruit league over in florida where it's a bit more spread out you're no Um, more than any ballpark isn't really no more than like 45 minutes away from the furthest ballpark so yeah i mean even on this side of town that i'm on you got you got six or eight teams that that train the, the baseball card shop is like a mile from Camelback Ranch. 
which is where the Dodgers and White Sox are during, during March. So we get a lot of fans in, in the store that are there to watch baseball. So. so you make sure you have your Dodger and White Sox uh, stuff in stock at that time is what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we, <laughs> and we, we sell baseballs by the dozens because people want to go to the ballpark and try to get an autograph. Yeah. So, yeah. Very cool. Well, we may, maybe at spring training time, we're going to have you back to just talk spring training because um, I've only been able to go to Grapefruit League action once in my life. And I think I saw four games in four days or something, and it was delightful and a lot of fun, but I've not yet gone to Phoenix. I do have some friends that live down there and some family, as you're aware of, and that's on my, my hit list, which takes me to the final question for you. Is there something that as a fan of sports for an entire lifetime, and, and certainly you have seen quite a bit, is there something that you still would like to see or a venue that you would still like to get to at some point? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I used to keep a list of how many major league ballparks I've been to, and it, it got pretty extensive for a while, but then a lot of them got replaced, you know, with, with, <laughs> with newer venues. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure that I have, um, I have a particular place on my bucket list. I did the place that was on my bucket list when I retired was Cooperstown. And, and I did a baseball road trip that first summer um, and, and, um, and stopped at ballparks along the way. I went to games in Kansas city and Cincinnati, Pittsburgh. And um, so I got to see some great venues and whatever, but I, I, I think it's about time for me to go back. So I think, I think if I had, if you had to, if I had to pick a spot that I want to go to again, uh, it's going to be Cooperstown. I want to do that again. It's been 15 years. And so um, I'd like to go and maybe share it. Uh, maybe I could get my son to go with me this time or something like that. He's a big Dodger fan. So um, uh, that, that would, that would still be at the top of my list. I think is Cooperstown. Yeah. Um, I was, Fortunate many years ago, it's been probably a decade now, that my dad and I uh, took a big old road trip and we did Canton for the Football Hall of Fame, Cooperstown, Springfield for the Basketball Hall of Fame, and then we wound up in Toronto for the Hockey Hall of Fame. And um, that was, um, you know, talk about memories for a lifetime, it, but none of them, in, in my estimation, at least for me, um, none could compare to Cooperstown because that's where my, I guess my history is most connected, but I would say the hockey hall of fame treats hockey there in Toronto, much the same way that, uh, you know, Cooperstown has treated the history of baseball. So, you yes. know, if, if you make it to Cooperstown, I would encourage you to figure out a way to get up to Toronto to see that, you know, even if you're not the well, biggest did, hockey I, fan in the world, it's, it's. I terrific. did get to the hockey hall of fame, but um, it was, probably 25 or 30 years ago. And I'm guessing that, that it's completely different than it was then. So another visit would be a good idea. Yeah. Uh, well, I cannot thank you enough, Don, for your, your, the gift of your time and for all of your recollections and the many wonderful stories. I, I look forward to uh, listening to this episode uh, myself multiple times to see what I missed during the conversation, even when I was talking to you, because it was uh, so much, so much great stuff. As long as you don't use it as a cure for insomnia, everything will be all right. <laughs> that That is a guarantee. Uh, well, thank you again. And, and if you're open to a, a spring training uh, catch up, we'll definitely put you on the list again. It'll be a lot of fun. 
Sure, be glad to. And I hope you get if you get out here for spring training, you can be my guest for game and surprise. I would I would uh, take you up on that, my friend. Thank you. All right, nice talking with you. Thanks. Good talking to you too. Conversations with sports fans is a production of the Sports Fan Project. Our theme music is, fittingly, entitled Wooden Championships by Lobo Loco. Please visit our website at thesportsfanproject.com for more information and to contact us. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with other sports fans you know and invite them to give it a listen. 